Hello, my name is Philip Mirotin, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Today's show is about awakening. We awaken every day, in fact. We move from night dreams to the public world. We wake up to a brighter reality every day. I've often wondered, though, whether this daily process of waking up is a metaphor for another kind of awakening. And this would be a spiritual awakening. The sort of spiritual awakening that goes by many names. It's known as enlightenment. Some people call it Christ consciousness. There's nirvana, there's moksha, and there's all sorts of other terms for this spiritual awakening. It tends to indicate some kind of leap to a higher level of awareness an awareness that may stand in the same relation to our normal state of consciousness as the public world stands to our night dreams. And that is why this spiritual awakening has fascinated folks throughout centuries and millennia because it tends to give the promise of a higher state of awakening. Now today I'm happy to have on the show James Lefevre, who's on the staff of the Theosophical Society, to talk about a form of awakening that some people may have heard about but may not know much about. And this is known as Kundalini Awakening. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you very much, Philip. I'm glad to be on the show. Okay, well thanks a lot for, for joining us. As I, as I mentioned, I saw that you were giving a talk on this topic and it's something that has fascinated me and uh, as I mentioned a couple guests have brought it up over the years and I thought it might be helpful to try to get our arms around this whole notion of Kundalini. Now first of all you are a staff member at the Theosophical Society and this is another concept that a lot of people may not have heard about so why don't you just briefly tell us what Theosophy is. Oh, uh, well, theosophy is uh, a study of uh, interfaith and a study of many religions, but it also has its own teachings uh, built in, and it was introduced by a woman named Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, and it, the Theosophical Society itself was founded by her and another gentleman named Henry Alcott in 1875. and. She received a lot of her teachings from Tibet and from India, and she was a Russian woman who became an American citizen. And so they founded this society not to promote the teachings she learned and not to promote any kind of personal endeavor, but really to bring people together in, in the state of brotherhood. So there's this really interesting dynamic where there are these teachings built into it. We have a library full of different theosophists who had their own education and their own information to impart. But that all sort of takes a backseat to the, the main purpose, which is brotherhood, and not just among uh, theosophical members, but also between all religions and all people everywhere. That's the intent. Yes, I, and I think that that's something that those who have not who have not uh, read up on on theosophy may not uh, appreciate, but you know because the title theosophy it it has sort of the connotation of of 
you know, being some kind of theology or some kind of, you know, sect or something. But I think it's very, it's, it's, it's almost a commentary on our time that we need, in my opinion, we need more thinkers, more ideas that are interfaith in origin. And I want to uh, highlight something here, that the, that the Theosophical Society was the group that brought the Dalai Lama uh, to Chicago at least a couple years ago and of course Dalai Lama is the Dalai Lama is famous for trying to get a, a dialogue between the different world's religions so I just wanted to lay that foundation here because I think uh, as a as a as a theosophist um, and being part of the society you know you have more of an open-minded interfaith view of something like Kundalini and you may not you probably are not coming at it from one different perspective such as Buddhism or Christianity or something like that would that be accurate yeah that's my intent yeah well I think I think that's I think that's very uh, helpful here okay so with regard to Kundalini what what is Kundalini let's start off with with the with the big picture here what exactly is it okay well to understand what kundalini is or kundalini awakenings as they're called it's important to understand that it's all about energy and if even energy is something kind of abstract we could say it's all about electricity in the nervous system uh, I, I hope or I assume some of the listeners are, are spiritually minded or open to that idea uh, because um, what happens is uh, there's and there's a lot of different reasons and a lot of different traditions that explain this concept but there's an energy that awakens in the spine and a lot of people describing it as riding up the spine and you know people may see lights or kind of feel this intense God-like experience like the ecstasy of Saint Teresa that kind of thing and and so after they become awakened with this energy, uh, typically that is what allows a lot of saints in the Hindu tradition. That's that's mostly where we get the name. It's a Sanskrit word, Kundalini. But that's where a lot of different saints in, in multiple traditions, but especially in India and the Hindu tradition, allows them to do things like perform miracles or commune or with a uh, god or have this kind of higher consciousness uh, which you know you had mentioned enlightenment and Christ consciousness that's what kind of opens that pathway so it, it's, it's very much about energy but that's kind of a stepping stone for a lot of people to imagine this this enlightened being or this saintly figure and it's it's more of like a physical manifestation of that kind of energy. That's the best way I can describe it. Yeah, and, and the technicalities are are myriad. There, yeah. Well, I th I think it's I think it's important here because you know if we if we rewind a little bit what you said, sure. You know, I'm all about connecting science and spirituality, and that sort of uh, you know the show is called Beyond Science and Religion, and so I do think that in our era it's important to bring these concepts th those being science and spirituality to see if we could link them together and make sense of this and i it just it just uh you know hit me as i was reading up on kundalini uh that once again 
you know, Einstein's equation of E equals MC squared comes to mind again. And there's been a couple writers uh, uh, recently, and I think this, you know, the whole energy field and energetics is, is becoming uh, more popular, I think, as one way to express this. But remember, you know, Einstein said mass equals energy. Well, mass, it, it would turn out, would be a very condensed form of energy. There's a lot of energy bound up in that nuclear atom thus explaining the power of the atomic bomb. And so if we view ourselves as condensed energy, then the notion that uh, a Kundalini is sort of connecting us with this energy source is not all that bizarre. And that, that's sort of what I, I wanted to sort of lay that down there because, you know, we tend to think many times of spiritual topics as being in a different uh, uh, frame of reference or a different uh, world, different room than the scientific perspective. But I, I wanted to make that connection that that Kundalini may be, may just be connecting us with with a energy source, and so and I think that that is um, a you know a helpful way to put it. Now, in my own mind, now with regard to the spine, there is a connection here with the, with something known as the chakras. Mm -hmm. Is that That's right? True. And and I think it might be helpful for you to just sort of summarize the chakras and what relationship they have with Kundalini. Sure. And with all of this stuff, there's kind of the myth, and then we can bring it down <laughs> to science. So in some ways, I'm very interested and enraptured with the myth and enjoy explaining that. Yeah. Uh, but so the myth or maybe more accurately the uh, the spiritual outlook of chakras is that they're seven uh, swirling whir you know chakra means wheel in Sanskrit so it's like this swirling energy uh, and there are seven of them there's one at the very top of their head there's one at where the third eye might be and it goes all the way down and it's in the front of the person's body and in the back connecting to their spine and each of them relate to a different type of aspect of one's spirituality or emotional or mental state. Uh, Ram Das talked a lot about that when, when he was uh, lecturing and first introducing the, the Hindu understanding of spirituality and the human body. So, but science has actually, and medical science has looked at these chakras and where they put these swirling energy patterns and they connect in very interesting points you know such as over the heart or where the third eye might be or the heart and by the heart I mean the sternum uh, sort of in the middle of the body and they've found that they're the endocrine system and the nervous system all kind of connect in a very specific way at the points that these chakras are located on the body and so there's uh, uh, very significant uh, organs and energy running through that body, that, that part of the body as well, where the chakras would be. So there is some scientific understanding of why, you know, if we were to imagine that these swirling uh, gateways of energy were in the body, there is some scientific reasoning of why those specific spots, and it's not just to be taken by tradition or by uh, spiritual reasoning. It is a uh... Isn't some Chinese medicine, like even uh, acupuncture, isn't that related to chakras? 
yes and no. Uh, similar with looking at it from a scientific perspective, there's uh, an understanding of the meridians, which okay. is used in acupuncture. Uh, there's pathways, uh, you could say, throughout the body. It's right. almost like in the same way that we have uh, ventricles and veins running through our body, distributing blood throughout it, there's path little tiny pathways of energy called the meridians. And those are what the Chinese doctors and herbalists put okay. needles in when they're doing acupuncture. I there's see. also major pools of energy, very, you know, you could say they're almost exactly the same as chakras, only the Chinese medicine system has three major ones, and they're called dantian. And uh, some of them overlap with the chakras. The dantian, one is in your, uh, like right below your belly button, a few inches below your belly button. Right. One is over your sternum, the similar to the heart chakra, and one is in the, the third eye point, uh, very similar to the ajna chakra in Hinduism. So some of the stuff overlaps, which I find I always find confirming and very interesting. Yeah, I th I think so too. And and one of the one of the, my observations about chakras, and I I've read a lot about them, and I've 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 always had a hard time accepting it or understanding it's maybe a better way to put it. But the more I read up on it, the more I'm I'm coming to the conclusion that if we switch our perspective and view ourselves as energetic beings or spiritual creatures or some other term like that, then the chakras would be maybe an expression of our of our spirit in the same way that our body would be an expression of spirit. And uh, you know, I think in our Western mind, we, we because we're so conditioned to look at things from the body inward. You know, we're always looking from that direction, but it's almost it's almost more. I think it's more understandable these things like chakras, if you look at it as being a reflection of of spirit, which leads us to the spine, right? And and kundalini, because I understand that kundalini is it. I've heard it uh, called like a bound up serpent or bound up energy. Yeah, that's the metaphor. They 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 compare it to a, a bound up serpent in the base of the spine, coiled up and waiting to kind of awaken or spring forth and ride up the spine towards the top of the head. Right. And so now from from the Western mind, what what do you tell? I mean, you you've talked on this topic. What what links or what do you tell you know the common uh, person on the street who who doesn't know anything about kundalini to get them to understand uh, what how it's important or why or why we should be aware of this? Well, uh, before I would say before 1960s, it wouldn't be that big of a deal for the Western person to be completely aware of it. Right. To be honest, um, what is happening is a lot of people are going into these very intense spiritual practices, you know, like they'll never they'll have never meditated before right. and they'll be going into this deep like week long meditation and with this intense breathing. And so I would introduce a new term aside from just Kundalini, which is again this kind of spiritual achievement. Uh, a lot of people are having what's common, commonly called as premature kundalini, hmm. which is you're awakening the energy before you're ready for it. And, and uh, so for the average person on the street, I would say don't worry about it. Keep living your spiritual practice and um, 
the only thing, you know, getting back to something you said about chakras and whether or not, you know, people incredulous whether they exist or not. Um, you know, all of this is all fine and good talking about it, but if you don't experience it, there's kind of no point. Right. So um, I would encourage people who are interested in learning about the chakras and learning about the pathways that kind of run up the spine uh, that to experience energy healing and go try out energy healing and see if they can feel anything. And, you know, there's been a lot in theosophical literature as well written about the Christian sacraments and, and anointing different parts of the body you know people will uh, do the sign of the cross and that kind of goes over uh, different energy points in the body so I think we have an intuitive understanding of this. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with James Lefevre, a staff member at the Theosophical Society about the fascinating topic of Kundalini experiences. Now you mentioned something there James that I wanted to touch upon which is, you called it premature kundalini. And mm -hmm. I've read in, up on this a little bit, and there are, I guess, occasions where it's, it sounded like somebody was taking a drug and they got too high or something, or, or, they, or they couldn't you know, deal with it. Um, what is it about these, these meditative practices or about some of the uh, movement that we see in our modern culture towards meditative practices and yoga, for example, that are opening the doors to kundalini. What, what is going on here? Well, it, it's, it's common sense in some ways, uh, Philip. It's anything done to excess is <laughs> not, not going to yield yeah, good results. I see. Uh, and that's really, that's really all you need to know. I encourage people to meditate, and I encourage people to... Uh, become familiar with uh, whether they want to call it chakras or danchyan, whether they want to do tai chi or qigong or uh, receive kind of energy massage or, or any kind of spiritual practice like that. That's using the energy in the body. I mean, it's all energy. Right. Uh, but when you do things like um, mix, sometimes people will mix. Uh, drugs or hallucinogenics with spiritual practices I mean that's obviously going to be a red flag right there right. that you're trying to push something and it's not a spiritual betterment of your own life you're trying to achieve something and find a shortcut and I think for some people that's how it happens for some people uh, they it's just a kind of medical proclivity and there are some stories and uh, I I would introduce a book and encourage people if they want to learn more about premature kundalini. Uh, there's a book called The Kundalini Experience by uh, Dr. Lee Sanella. And he's documented a lot of these cases where people, uh, you know, the same way that medical instances can strike people inadvertently, uh, they'll have these kundalini experiences. And modern medicine has a very hard time diagnosing them because they compare it with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or, or they compare it with a psychosis when it's actually an energy imbalance in the body. Yeah, I think that I think that is really a good observation and it's something I want to touch upon here. So so first of all, what would be some of the symptoms of a, pre a premature kundalini? Uh, right, right, a premature kundalini. What would be some of the symptoms? 
Uh, well, beforehand, a lot of people experience paranoia or anger, and they have the, the physical symptoms they might have are like, they feel like kind of fleas are biting them or itching at them. Um, having worked, have, being you know an employee at the Theosophical Society, there are people who come through our doors uh, looking for help because they're experiencing something and they don't understand what it is. Right. Now, uh, we're not doctors and we're not professionals, so we'll encourage them to pursue medical help first and foremost. But a lot of times these people may or may not be meditating six times a day and they notice a correlation with, or they'll notice a correlation with uh, when they meditate, that's when they start having these experiences. And while there's good and it becomes ecstatic in a way, the same way that uh, bodybuilding might become ecstatic in a way, you know, anything to access can become uh, ecstatic. Right. Uh, there's still there's still this uh, downside to it, and they're aware of it, but they don't want to stop. So we'll tell them very, you know, it's it, it doesn't take a lot of common sense to to spiritually guide some people who are in crisis like this. You don't need to be familiar with this or be uh, working at the Theosophical Society, we tell them to meditate less. And we also include, you know, there are certain grounding practices that anyone can look up on the internet, you know, grounding meditation that would be a benefit. And a lot of times these people will hear what we're saying and they won't want to listen because right. they're pursuing something and, and, you know, they're in the midst of it. Some people do listen, and that makes me really happy because that means we can make a difference to some of these people and in their lives. But yeah, well, uh, I, I want to, you know, emphasize something here. You know, we're talking really about an energy imbalance, and it sounds to me like it's it's an imbalance between the individual self and the source of the energy. Something is out of sync, and this notion of being out of sync comes across in different fields uh, a week or so ago we had somebody talking about you know being being um, in, in tune with the universe and and with the top and with the Tao and you know being in balance and here we're sort of taking a, a little different perspective and we're assuming that there is this energy source it's a powerful source and if you open the doors to it, either when you're not ready or you open the door too wide, then it then it, it creates these symptoms or the or this I would call it maybe an energy sickness that that is that, that medical science probably doesn't have in their books. It probably isn't written in one it probably is not taught in the in the uh, medical schools in the US, you know, how to cure an energy imbalance. Uh, so, so I, I know you you've you've spoken about this a little bit, and and what does that what does that tell you about really where where we need to go in in medicine? I mean, do you think this is a failing of the Western mindset, or or do you think that this is just something that's going to have to be dealt with on an individual basis here? Well, in terms of Western medicine, I think everything needs to be done gradually. Yeah. I, I think that um, in terms of Western education, in terms of the benefits of meditation, that was something that was done gradually, and here we are, and now doctors are saying, 
meditation is good for you and here's all the benefits. Yeah. So uh, there's a, a practice called therapeutic touch. It, it's like an energy, um, it's an energy treatment, it's an energy healing modality, or whatever you want to call it. And that was created by a theosophical president named Dora Kuntz. And currently that's being revised uh, and being considered for being covered by some people's insurance plans. Hmm. Uh, you have to go through a whole, you have to jump through a whole lot of hoops to, to make that happen. And there, it's, it's kind of really kind of going along slowly. But I think that's a good thing, and that's a sign of where we're going with this. So I, I don't think it's a failing of the Western mind. I think that we're going slow enough to be able to accurately understand it. And uh, another on another comment, we're not just talking about one thing. We're not just talking about energy imbalance. I think we're actually having a conversation that's so expansive, we're talking about at least two things. One is premature kundalini awakening, which is an energy imbalance. The other thing we're talking about is, or at least we're taking into consideration that there is such a thing as a genuine, uh, you know, ripe kundalini awakening. And I think that many of the saints and sages, both in the East and the West, uh, experience something like that, in my opinion. And that can only come through devotion and spiritual purity. And then when that energy is awakening, you don't have a conflict within the psychological mind between their own selfishness and, um, their own um, personal aspirations. So what you have is the making of a saint. Now, if a normal person awakens this energy, you know, we think of ourselves as good people, but a lot of us have a lot of issues. And what this energy does is strengthen those issues. If we're, uh, you know, if we're jealous people, we'll become absolutely paranoid people. If we're angry people, it'll make us into, you know, someone raging and angry all the time. So that's something I think is important to consider before medical science tries to get their hands on this and identify it and classify it. Yeah, that's, I think that's a good point. And it leads to the common question, which is, can anybody have a, a legitimate kundalini experience? Uh, the short answer, I would say, is no. Okay. And, and why uh, is that? Well, by legitimate... I really want to know, are, do you mean uh, kundalini in the sense of making of a saint, like I just right, said? Right, 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 right. In other words, uh, is, is there is there a, a saint saint potential, a Christ potential, however, whatever term you want to use, a Buddha potential in all of us, and we all have that potential to tap it and to unleash it? Oh, I see. Well, okay, I misunderstood. I thought you were yeah. saying you know, the average person, and I'm saying these are extraordinary people. Right. But everyone, of course, has that potential. I think if you have a, a working spinal cord and a, you know a, a brain and a nervous system, that's indicative that the energy is there. Uh, what we're really doing is kind of amping up this energy and realizing the connection we have to everything. You know, whether it's the flowers and the trees, or just even as individuals. We create our own electromagnetic field, and so we're resonating with the earth and everything else, whether we know it. So what happens is you awaken to that, and if you have the mental, emotional, and spiritual purity, uh, it becomes a good thing, and you become a servant for everyone around you. Uh, and, and I myself have not met anyone like that, but uh, you know, usually books are written about those people, and they're so extraordinary that people will either 
refuse to believe they exist and think it's just a myth and you know this saint whomever or this uh you know yoga or baba somebody they can't be that pure but i i choose to believe that they are and, and i'm grateful for them i think that that is one of the the key the you know the key questions a lot of people would would, would probably say what's in it for me why why is this important what what do we learn what do we learn from the the kundalini experience james what what is this telling us about ourselves i believe we learn that it's there's a scientific reasoning behind spiritual progress if we choose to look at it that way and if we have that mental inclination but also it means that uh, with spiritual practice uh, everyone benefits you know it's not about getting to the end of the road it's not about attaining the holy grail or or finding shangri-la uh, the small steps make a difference and we have those pathways within ourselves and science can prove that we have those pathways in ourselves and you know the more we learn about the brain and the nervous system uh, the more we'll learn with what benefits that uh, hatha yoga and meditation and tai chi benefit us and also make us such spiritual beings so uh, theosophists are kind of pegged for being bookworms and we just like to learn about things for the sake of learning about it so on some on some level it's gratifying for me to learn about a scientific understanding of energy but even if you don't want to go into the details it's worth knowing that uh, science does verify it and so just keep your spiritual practice and every every little bit benefits everyone around you and I, I think that's wonderful this is Philip Mirton, and this is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with James Lefevre of the Theosophical Society about Kundalini experiences and what we could all learn from them. And James, it's, it's important, I think, to also understand what, what got you sort of into this area. What, what, was, the, what was the hook in your own um, development. Well, uh, the hook for me is, um, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. When I was 22 years old, uh, I started meditating and, uh, I, well, it's worth mentioning that I was in college and that at the time and I was under an extreme amount of stress and I think finals were going on at the time and, uh, I was meditating and it helped a lot. And I don't know, I wasn't meditating with a teacher or anything. I was just kind of approaching it with reckless abandon. And I started having some of these symptoms. Uh, I started feeling levels of paranoia or um, anger or something like that. But I was still in my own mind and I still understood that something was going on that really wasn't me. And um, you know, I rationally thought maybe there's some sort of psychosis going on, which actually uh, I've learned since then is usually not what someone who's in that state of psychosis like medically has. And then one day it came to a culmination and I had uh, an experience like that and I felt this hot lead kind of rising up my spine and blowing through the top of my head and for a while I felt like I was standing above my own body. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's you know there's a whole lot of little phenomena that happened afterwards you know I could I could go through and list them all but uh, 
you know, we, we don't need to talk about all of them because it's just a list of different symptoms you might read about. Um, you know, seeing things, you know, there's, you become photosensitive, very sensitive to bright light, that kind of thing. And luckily, uh, my girlfriend, my current wife at the time, was uh, a marriage and family psychology. She was getting her master's at the time. So I called her up and I said, something's going wrong. And we went to various psychiatrists. Uh, and no one could diagnose it properly because I didn't exhibit any of the typical symptoms. Uh, as Lee Sinella talks about in his book, uh, I, I was completely rational. I was in my own mind. I just knew all this stuff was going on that I didn't really have any control over. Yeah. And I didn't completely understand. What's, what's, so, what's so compelling to me about a lot of this is what you said earlier about how important it is for each of us to have our own personal experience with these things. And I think it's one of the struggles that the, that the spiritual field, uh, whether we call it theosophy, new spirituality, new age, a lot of these uh, fields that are not based upon uh, repeatable objective measurements and testing in the scientific sense, that a lot of it comes down to a personal experience, and and once you have one, it's almost impossible to talk somebody out of the fact that they have this experience. And I think that 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 is that is really good. But I I also like what you're saying about how this these experiences are now being or the the energetic side of health is being recognized by science. And it might help for you just to talk a little bit about what kind of work or studies you've done in that area, where where you think sci uh, medical science might be heading. You mentioned a therapeutic touch, but is mm -hmm. there any, is there anything else that's that's going on in this area where you think that uh, there might be some kind of merger between Western and Chinese or Asian medicine at some point? Yeah, um, well, there's a lot of studies in, well, first of all, I mean, it's important to look at where we've been. Uh, I don't know if you've had anyone on your show talk about John Kabat-Zinn and the pursuit of mindfulness. There's a lot of entire facilities and hospitals that have been working over the past few decades uh, just to track the benefits of meditation on the body. Right. And, um, you know, basically all the statistics that we have now looking at meditation and looking at the benefits of physical health are in a way taking their cue from John Kabat-Zinn or working for uh, his his movement. I, th I think in the future, or I should hope, is a lot of the studies for digestion and uh, what's called Ayurvedic pra practice, and that's the kind of understanding of the, the, the Hindu philosophy that food is everything. Uh, and it's important to understand that different people will have different food temperaments and so require a very specific diet unique to them rather than just prescribing for everyone, here's what you should eat and here's you know the four food groups and all of that. So I think that when we have a better understanding of food and that you know if you've ever heard the phrase food is a drug is the same the way yeah. the drugs is a drug, once we have a better understanding of that and how that interacts with each of us individually down to our genetic code, uh, 
we will have a much better handle on what causes disease and how to better take care of ourselves. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that there is a slow developing uh, tendency to ex for the acceptance of holistic holistic medicine. And it just, uh, you know, I know it, a lot of it, a lot of it grows out of studies of the placebo effect in the, I think, the mid-20th century and that and the famous, the famous concept of bedside manner, which, you know, the more uh, personable, friendly, open, compassionate doctor is, uh, there was an association with, with having faster cures or feeling better. And it's, it's that, it's sort of an energy field, like we're talking about, where we, where you can't just, to me, you know, isolating an illness, particularly the, a, a mental type of disorder, isolating it and treating it as some kind of disarrangement of chemicals or neurons, it just isn't going to work. Because, I mean, it's sort of like this, you know, back in the day, you probably know that they used to, you know, do lobotomies on people that had hallucinations or something. I mean, it, it's, it's unbelievable um, how far we've come. And I think that this is a very optimistic development, a very promising development, that this notion of energy healing uh, and, and the importance of meditation and therapeutic touch is starting to be accepted uh, in the medical community. Now, with regard to somebody who, who wants to have a kundalini experience or work in that direction and, and let's and, you know we're calling it an awakening here what what are some of the steps that you would recommend somebody do oh wow i i don't think i would recommend anyone pursue that if yeah. if in fact if i was going to say their main bullet point to my whole uh message is that to avoid that hmm. and and um to pursue the gradual spiritual path, uh, not to pursue any sort of enlightenment, not to pursue anything that drastic. But And so that being said, uh, I think what's important to understand about the human body and uh, in terms of energy and in terms of uh, psychosis is that it's all about, uh, you know, electricity and the electromagnetic spectrum and how it plays on the body is so undervalued nowadays uh, you know, they it's all about they think it's all about chemicals and we're basically a big right. uh, vat of chemicals and Lee Sanella as I mentioned I, I really can't recommend his book enough he explores the idea that our circulatory system and our nervous system are so intertwined and there's this rhythm uh, of electromagnetic pulsing through our body. Uh, and in that sense, if you think of it that way, we are all affecting each other. And the electrical appliances we have around each other uh, are affecting us to in a way that uh, we really don't completely understand and we haven't really cracked yet. And that could be applied for medicine and that kind of thing. In fact, uh, there's a lot of interesting phenomena in terms of people becoming more photosensitive these days in medical uh, diagnostics. And there's also a resurgence of electromagnetic sensitivity where people can't even use their computers without feeling, you know, all the static and all the tingling. Uh, 
But to, to approach your other question in terms of people who are interested in the path of Kundalini, interested in having an experience, I, I, would, I would encourage the experience, just not an approach towards having a Kundalini experience. <laughs> uh, so I would encourage people to get into energy healing. I would encourage people to do Hatha yoga, and I would encourage people to do meditation. That's the thing. A lot of this isn't rocket science. I, I wish I had like a formula. Well, all you need to do is turn around three times and, you know, uh, sit with your back to a tree and sit there for six hours. Yeah. And, and then you'll have this miraculous experience. Yeah. But spirituality is a lot more common sense than that. Uh, and I, I really believe that meditation and uh, uh, yoga are, are wonderful exercises for the physical and the mental body. And if you're curious about energy, then start at the beginning and go to someone who does energy healing for a profession and have a session. You'll sit on a table for an hour and they'll work on all your chakras and no one's asking you to believe in anything that they're doing. They'll just work on you and you can be very inquisitive and see if you actually feel anything or see if you think that they're uh, completely bunk if that's what you think. But you can test it for yourself and experience it for yourself. And if it's something that speaks to you, there's a lot of pathways that you can keep learning and there are people that teach this kind of thing. Yeah, I, I like to get clear about this because as I was as I was reading up on the Kundalini uh, experiences, the, the thought came to my mind about whether it's sort of like, you know, is the goal to have a slow release of energy such that your bodies, our lives are in tune with this energy. Is that the ultimate goal? And therefore, a kundalini experience is actually not a good thing because it's like a sudden outburst of energy. Is that is that what you're saying here about how you don't want to like have it explode? Yeah, that is what I'm saying. And what I'm also saying is for the average person, which is what we're talking about, the type of person who has a nine to five job right. and a family, uh, it's going to be of no benefit to awaken these uh, senses. Like imagine someone living in New York and all of a sudden their sense of smell is amplified <laughs> yeah. a hundredfold. Yeah. That's not something that you want. Right. However, uh, and this really speaks to reverence for people who live the spiritual life and you know that we should uh, listen to them and appreciate what they do. There are people who will live out in the woods or whatever, isolate themselves and uh, find emotional purity, find non-attachment. Uh, they remove all anger and all jealousy and all the kind of uh, bad or what we associate as bad emotions and they, they purify themselves and they live for the benefit of others. And those people uh, are usually a part of a tradition, whether it's a yogic tradition or some sort of spiritual tradition. It's an inevitability that they, this will awaken due to that much practice, due to that much meditation. And so when it happens, they become like amplifiers of goodness, uh, amplifiers of positive emotions, if, if you believe in that sort of good vibration thing. And, you know, if, if we're talking about uh, projecting these sort of good vibrations, they benefit the world. And I, I, I think an excellent example, you talked about the Dalai Lama. I've never heard of anyone being in the presence of the Dalai Lama not feeling absolutely happy and absolutely blissful, uh, even if they came in with the intention of 
uh, you know, proving him a fraud or or, or whatever. Right. Uh, when they're in his presence and they say he has such an infectious laugh that everyone in the room is affected by it. I, I think that's kind of what we're looking at. And that's why we're talking about such a thing as Kundalini. These very spiritual people get to this point where they reach this attainment and it benefits all of us. And really, we shouldn't try to pursue what they have, especially if we want to keep our nine to five job. Yeah. We should just be grateful for it. Yeah, that's. I think that's. I think that's well put, James. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with James Lefevre of the Theosophical Society about Kundalini awakening, and I want to again make sure we understand this because it's the picture's coming together a little bit here. Implicit in this notion of the Kundalini and the spine and the built-up energy is that there is a progression of spiritual development. Is that something that you would agree with, that there's a progression? I think that's absolutely accurate. Okay, and so, so there's a progression, and some people, because of their, their lives, their commitments, their, their culture, they go up higher on the on the path of spiritual uh, progression. And therefore, these people like you just mentioned, maybe the Dalai Lama, and we could, and we could bring in the great you know, uh, leaders of the religious tr traditions here, such as Muhammad or maybe, or Jesus Christ or whatever, we could throw people in there, the Buddha. Yeah. You know, the Buddha, we could say, well, these people, we could explain their power because they progressed higher on that spiritual plane. Is is that is that what we're saying here? Yeah, I'm following you so far. I, right. I, I like what you're saying. Right. Okay. And so, and so, therefore, and and it seems to me that uh, what you're saying is that not everybody is going to have that destiny, and that many of us who still have to work nine to five, who live in New York City, uh, who work in office buildings, who have uh, stressful, responsible jobs, we don't have that, that commitment or the time or the mindset to, to develop that spiritual um, sense that, 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 is, that is within us. And so therefore, we need to be careful about you know, unleashing the power of the Kundalini when we haven't when we haven't uh, progressed up that ladder enough. Something. I think I think that's uh, factually true about what I'm saying, but right. if I were going to give a message, I would want to make it more encouraging and less fear-based. Okay. But, but um, aside from that, I think that's absolutely true. But uh, I do believe that the people who work 9 to 5 have a great benefit to the world as well. And you know, as you mentioned, it's a path and it's a progress, and we can make great progress in our everyday lives as well. Yes, and, and I want to, uh, you know, again, that we could lay this whole notion over the course of human history, and this is, this is, me, this is me talking here, that, you know, there are some people out there who believe that the, you know, the spirit of humankind is evolving, and that would include people like Hegel and Aurobindo 
and I think Ken Wilber would be in that category, where there's where there like there's this evolution of spirit, and if and we each go through this same kind of development. I mean, I'm always optimistic that that each of us can continue developing the spirit. And what what that means to me is identifying what we really what our what our authentic self is with what the underlying energy is in the world or the under, or the under, or the or the absolute reality. Uh, and you know that's one way to put it. Another way to put it would be to uh, to um, you know lay Atman the self over Brahman and reach Nirvana, blah blah blah. But you know, James, I think our challenge today in our modern society is to put what we're talking about in in the English language, so that folks could understand this and realize that this is not just for the Buddhist monks in the forest. I mean that that's sort of that's sort of where where I'm at with this. So if you so if you had to be, I mean you you've said a lot of really good practical things here, but um, what what I mean in your talks, what practical words of wisdom do you give people on this? Um, well, when I, I like to give the example, of, there's a very famous theosophist named William Kwan Judge. And when he was on his deathbed, he, he said uh, some very interesting words. And what he said was, uh, it should be calm, hold fast, go slowly. And I think that is the, uh, the best advice from a practical perspective. However, it, it is also important to understand that we do all of us have this potential to grow suddenly, and some people do grow a very significant amount in a short time and as a result those people do end up going out and uh, becoming teachers and and the, they stop working their nine to five jobs so I think it is important to know that we do all have that potential we do all have that spiritual progress uh, within us uh, but it's not something that we should try to rush headlong into and we should realize that we all are teachers and have potential uh, gifts to give to the world and with spiritual practice uh, there is that potential for awakening that is that potential for great spiritual growth and so we should uh, we should have confidence on our capabilities if we're earnest and, and I think I think that's really important being earnest on the spiritual path creates a, a great deal of growth and I think that's e even capable for the common person even if you are working a nine-to-five job right now so what is awakening to you? What does it mean to you? I mean, the, your, your talk is called Kundalini Awakening. That's what the show is, the title of this show. What, what, how can you describe what this awakening is? Uh, specifically, the Kundalini Awakening is a, an awakening of energy. Uh, but the overarching point that I'd like to make is that as a society, we're all having this awakening. And I do think we're evolving in a very good direction and a much better direction. I think that, uh, and I know this could be a topic in and of itself, I think that kids are being born with much more capability and much more intellect in this realm of understanding. And I think that more and more kids are being, being taught 
meditation at a young age and they're they're grasping it and they're they're embracing it and i think as a society we're evolving and i think that every person that can be a part of that consciousness of evolution uh, whether you wanted to call it a kundalini awakening or a sense of uh, enlightenment of the society i think that every little bit helps because we're all a family and we're all working together and this energy is 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 here and now and it's being awakened and and it, you know uh, embrace it and on that point what is what is so i think powerful for me is that if all this stuff we talk about uh, on this show and the Theosophical Society and so many writers out there from Larry Dossi to Deepak Chopra and Greg Braden and all these guys, um, if, if what we're talking about is true, that there is this unified energy, this one consciousness, absolute, real, absolute reality, one mind, whatever we're calling it, and it is evolving, then it, it's eventually going to evolve to the point where people understand it or appreciate it, and it's going to occur whether we want it to or not. And, and this is something where I part company with the Darwinian evolutionary picture, because it's, you know Darwin is really a, a complete materialist, and he completely forgot or didn't know about this thing called spiritual evolution. And of course, this is a whole other topic, James. But but every time we talk, every time we talk about evolution, I think you've got to talk about spiritual evolution at the same time. It can, it cannot be ignored. And this is really the I think the evolution of what's inside of us to better understand who we really are as people. And so that that is something that you know I'm I'm encouraged that you have that observation that you know young kids are more open to this. I think that to me it's like, well, they're, you know, I've always equated, you know, the pure mind of Zen, for example, with the child's mind. A lot of people, you know, compare the two, beginner's mind, child's mind. And we have more and more, uh, you know, open minds being exposed to these ideas that, that they start experiencing them themselves and, and appreciating the truth. So I am I am optimistic, and I hope I, I assume you are too um, from from your experiences and and from all the studies that you've done, not only in the library over there uh, at the Theosophical Society, but also in your own in your own experiences. I am I'm very optimistic. I'm really excited, in fact. Yes, and I, and I really think this is this is where this is where things are heading. And at the end of the day. I think every culture calls this by a different name. As I said in the beginning of the show, that you know we call it enlightenment, we call it moksha, nirvana. Uh, we've learned a lot here, at least I have, uh, about uh, the Kundalini uh, uh, approach. We have Einstein and M equals M C squared. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. E equals M C squared. I didn't even get the formula right. E equals M C squared. Um, where science itself recognizes that the root of what we call matter is energy. And I'm just optimistic and hopeful that at some point we're going to have science come on board and say, yeah, there is an energy component to the human body. The body is made of matter. We have to start looking not only at the physical world and our bodies, 
um, as being the only reality, but we have to recognize that spirituality is real. Uh, James, thank you very much for your time. I've learned a lot. I hope the listeners have too. And uh, why don't you quickly tell us, uh, for folks who want to learn a little bit about the Theosophical Society, and maybe just mention a couple of your Kundalini books uh, for, for those who want to read up a little bit on this. Yeah, uh, well, as I mentioned, uh, in terms of learning about Kundalini, there's the Kundalini Experience by Lee Sinella, MD. And there's uh, a lot of books by Gopi Krishna, who was an Indian-born uh, average person, and he experienced this Kundalini and wrote a few autobiographies about it. Uh, a really comprehensive one is called Living with Kundalini, and uh, for, for a more abridged one, it's, there's one called Kundalini, the Evolutionary Energy in Man. Regarding the Theosophical Society, I would encourage people, if they wanted to learn what it's all about and its, its teachings and ideas, uh, a really concise book is called The Key to Theosophy, or The Key to Theosophy by Helena Blavatsky. And... Um, yeah, the, basically everything you're saying about science eventually proving what we know about spirituality is a central tenet in the Theosophical Society, and she touches upon that as well. And once again, James, thank you very much for your time, and I hope that we see here that there are multiple lines of convergence heading in this direction and heading to uh, a, a world where science is going to appreciate, understand, uh, the power of the human spirit and the reality of the human spirit. This is Philip Merritton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Merritton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com. 